This is Jacobin Radio, and I'm Susie Wiseman. Imagine you walk into a warehouse where the workers are on break, and you stumble into a vigorous, nuanced discussion of Marx's notion of surplus value, how it relates to organizing on the shop floor, and then how it applies to flexible and often women's labor. Then the conversation turns to Gramsci and workers' councils in Turin, and you know you aren't in Kansas. This is exactly what Carolina Munoz encountered on her first visit to a warehouse in Chile, beginning her study of how unions responded to Walmart's entry into Chile that turned into the book, Building Power from Below, Chilean Workers Take on Walmart. Incredibly, the majority of Walmart's workers in Chile are unionized. Yes, at Walmart, the epitome of vigilant anti-unionism. Part of the deal Walmart had to accept when the U.S.'s largest employer bought a supermarket chain with a degree of worker organization already in place. The biggest story is what happened next. Chilean retail and warehouse workers built their power by organizing rank-and-file-led unions and winning real economic gains, along with respect and dignity on the job. We'll ask Carolina about the tactics and strategies they use to challenge Walmart culture and pose the question whether they are applicable elsewhere, especially right here in the United States. And then Nelson Lichtenstein joins the discussion on Walmart and organizing retail workers in the U.S. Nelson edited a hugely influential collection on Walmart, the face of 21st century capitalism, and followed up with The Retail Revolution, How Walmart Created a Brave New World of Business, an analysis of the way this giant rogue company became the world's largest corporation and transformed American politics and business. Nelson anticipated a day of reckoning for Walmart as challenges to its militantly anti-union business model grow at home and abroad, as the Chilean case shows, that are likely to change Walmart's empire and its practices. We'll get Nelson's take on the state of U.S. labor today in the Trump era and see if he thinks the successful West Virginia teacher strike, the growing pro-union sentiment, enhanced capacity for mobilization and militancy could mean that that reckoning is at hand. All this in a moment on Jacobin Radio. Susie Wiseman, and welcome to Jacobin Radio. And I'm really pleased to have in studio with me Carolina Bank Munoz, and she's an Angelino, but transplanted as of now. She's a professor of sociology at Brooklyn College and the Graduate Center. She's the author of previously Transnational Tortillas, but she's here today to talk to us about a brand new book called Building Power from Below, Chilean Workers' Take on Walmart. And although I said that Carolina is an Angelina, she was born in Chile and came here as a child when her family fled Chile from the Pinochet era. And she grew up, as she says, in a culturally rich but economically poor environment, but always accompanied her father in his work as a door-to-door photographer around East L.A. and got a lot of on-the-job training of how capitalism worked. And her work, her academic and political work, focuses on immigration, globalization, labor, work, and Latin America. And this book tells an amazing story. We're going to get to all of it. Welcome to Jacobin Radio. Thanks so much for having me. I'm really thrilled to have you here. So let's just begin with this story of Walmart in Chile. So Walmart is this notoriously anti-union, in fact, that's its mantra, anti-union company. 
and it has had this systematic hardline approach to any attempt to mention the word union. I have a friend who worked at Walmart in Colorado, and he said if you even whispered something that sounded like union, you were out the door. So given all of that, you describe a kind of different situation about Walmart in Chile. And the shocking thing, I think, for people here in the United States is to discover, as you show in your book, that Walmart abroad often has to contend with a unionized workforce. So let's just start right there. Yeah, Walmart's retail operations are actually unionized in every other country except for Canada, globally. So it has had to contend with a lot of unions. I think what makes the Chile case particularly unique is that there's a tremendous variation in the kinds of unions that Walmart has to deal with, from corrupt company unions to my case in Chile, which is of a very, very democratic bottom-up union. And we'll get into that. But you just mentioned Canada. And one of my other roles, I sit on the U.S. National Workers Board, and we did the Canada case because Walmart built a huge facility there in Ottawa. And as you probably well know, Canadian labor law respects unions. When Walmart realized they were going to have to contend with a unionized workforce, they just cut their losses and ran, which was really pretty incredible. So I think given that that's the North American variant, it's really surprising to learn from you that everyone else they've had to contend with this situation. Okay, so let's go right into what labor organizing in Walmart in Chile look like, because you show that it's both warehouse and retail, and that this is two different operations in Chile, but they both achieved striking success, although at a lesser extent for the retail workers, as you say. But you described, as you just did now, a very different form of unionism that's from the ground up, rank and file with an emphasis on union democracy. So let's hear about how they managed to do that. I think that kind of cuts to the chase, but let's start there. Great. So Walmart workers in Chile, there's a lot of different unions in Walmart Chile, but the warehouse union and two of the five federations have a very different model, and they have had enormous success in new organizing in Chile as well as breaking there was a corrupt union and the retail workers were able to effectively break the pattern agreement. So both in terms of new organizing and breaking the pattern agreement, workers have had success in bargaining against Walmart. So what was different from the warehouse to the retail operations? Let's start with, say, how did they get started and what did they have to do to organize? The warehouse workers has a more traditional labor story. They're a union that has a lot of structural power. There's only three warehouses in Chile, and if they go on strike, it shuts down operations everywhere. So they started out with some covert organizing in 2006 before Walmart arrived and were able to have a one-month strike that shocked the previous company, DNS, which was very much modeled on Walmart. And their first contract was relatively weak, but they really took the moment to grow their union, to build power from below, to do political education, inform members, do one-on-one organizing, set up committees. And for their second contract, they were really prepared to negotiate hard By that time, Walmart was already in negotiations with DNS, and it 
provided a unique political opportunity for a very successful contract, including 30% wage increases. It's huge. Two offices, one inside the warehouse and one in downtown Santiago, release time for the union president. And so that's really when the union started being successful and started being able to leverage their power. Because before that, even though warehouse workers have a lot of structural power, it's really useless power unless they're leveraging it effectively. And you mentioned that there's only really two or three warehouses in Chile, three actually, right? So that those three are down then, retail's down too in in Chile. And, and if you contrast, I don't know how many warehouses Walmart operates out of, but there's hundreds in the inner empire, as we call it right here in Southern California, and with a brave attempt of the workers to organize, but a very different outcome. So I guess to go back to that, do you think it's one of the facts of their success is that there were so few warehouses? So if they were successful in organizing those few warehouses, they could strike a blow at Walmart's operations and make it really felt? Definitely. And one of the things that Walmart did, understanding very well how powerful this union was, was to build a state-of-the-art, huge, 100% subcontracted DHL warehouse in Santiago. And what they found was they were losing a million dollars a month in broken goods because the subcontracted workers didn't know how to move production like the unionized, skilled workers in the other two warehouses. And so eventually Walmart had to move production back into the unionized warehouses and the union was able to effectively incorporate the non-union subcontracted workers into their ranks. You talk, Caroline, in your book, and you mentioned it here too, about the structural power that these workers had. And you said that they were able to build power by virtue of their structural power, the warehouse workers. We haven't quite gotten yet to the retail, but apparently that that power wasn't as available or available to the retail workers. So for our listeners, can you describe both what that structural power is and where it came from? Sure. I mean, their location and the economy is unique, right? Because the products go from the ports around Santiago to the warehouse, and then from the warehouse to the nearly 400 Walmart stores in all of Chile. So when you're striking or when you're doing massive stickouts or slowing down production in any way, it's going to have a major effect on the company's ability to move its product. So that's where their power comes from in the economy, but that power has to be leveraged and mobilized, right? So the way they did that was through this model, you know, the workers call it real unionism, right? <laughs> as opposed um, to fake unionism. As opposed to fake unionism. <laughs> they mean <clears throat> unionism that allows them to make strategic decisions, that allows them to be involved in the daily operations of their union, that gives them authority over their work lives. So would you call that worker-led unionism or democratic unionism? Maybe you could just describe what that means, the real unionism. Sure. In the book, I call it strategic democracy, that the warehouse operates under this model of strategic democracy, which is just that. It's led by intense political education, worker-led knowledge production. They're the ones that are mapping the workplace. They're the ones that are reading Gramsci <laughs> and trying to understand, you know, the worker councils in Turin. And they're, they're using this knowledge that's academic, but that's also 
what they're experiencing in their workplace to produce effective strategies that have allowed them to make unprecedented economic gains, so much so that these workers in Chile are making more money per month than Walmart warehouse workers in Southern California. Wow. Well, I want to get on to the retail in a minute, but I want to dwell for a second on what you just said, because it's so important and it's so unique in a sense. It's what literally those who are struggling for union democracy and rank and file organization here in the United States aspire to and organize for. But you're showing that in Chile, at least in the instances where you were able to work and do this book, and also that you spent seven months at once and then many times later interviewing workers. So this is something that is real, this real union workers. And I can't imagine, you know, you, you talked about them reading Gramsci and discussing workers' councils and workers' power in Turin and the model there. In another part in the book, I think you mentioned that the workers are discussing where surplus comes from. And can you imagine that happening in the United States, that kind of discussion? No. (laughs) Well, okay, so that, and we'll come back to the retail workers, but we come back to the political and historical legacy of the Chilean working class movement, which after all was in my view, of course, and in not just mine alone, but many, that that was a sort of classic working class struggle that produced uh, popular unity and the Allende period. And it was literally a revolutionary situation that was curtailed ferociously and brutally by the Pinochet dictatorship in 73. And Pinochet famously said that he was going to stay in power for at least a generation to wipe out and eradicate every element of that Marxist cancer. And he certainly did his best to do that. And in the book, Carolina, you do say that the workers were virtually a clean slate and that there wasn't much of the old traditions there. But I'm doubtful. And I just wonder, let's talk a little bit about that, about that important political and economic and working class history. Yeah, so a lot of the workers were new to organizing and were new to unions period. The workers who started organizing, there were four or five workers who started the covert organizing, and all of them had come from families with political experience. They were in, their parents were in the metal workers union, they were in teachers unions. So they had come from trade union families. And Some of them had also been quite involved in anti-dictatorship organizing. So that kind of core group that started organizing in 2006 was more politically experienced and rooted in this kind of working class history and knowledge of it that was passed down through generations. But by and large, the workers in the warehouse did not have a super strong political orientation They got their politics from the escuela sindical or the union school that workers are forced to attend (laughs) at least once if they want to be on the union soccer team. So there's a high level of motivation to participate in this union school. And that's where they're getting their politics and their consciousness development because it's not just about learning how to be a shop steward. It's learning labor history. It's learning theory and how to apply theory to the workplace. I'm speaking with Carolina Bank Munoz, and she has a new book called Building Power from Below, Chilean Workers Take on Walmart. And we're going to be doing a lot of Walmart talking today, both in Chile and in the United States. 
But let's go back now because another thing that you talk about in the book is the way that under the Pinochet era, they tried to wipe out this memory, even though, as you've described, I think that sometimes historical memory lingers on and filters down in ways that aren't necessarily easy to pinpoint, but are somehow there in the DNA of of the working class because of the shared struggles and even conversations or memories of repression or family repression and all of those things. And on the other hand, in your book, you spend quite a bit of time talking about the labor code as it was from either back in the 30s, and then again later on Frey, and then under Allende, and then what Pinochet did to the labor code. And so maybe you could talk a little bit then about, given that the country was so ravaged by the neoliberal model, the Chicago boys model, the shock doctrine, shock therapy in Chile, it's kind of remarkable, isn't it? Even doubly, triply so that they were able to overcome that and the labor code, and maybe you should describe what it is a little bit. So what is it that the workers had going for them, say, that they don't here in the United States? Yeah, so the Chilean labor code is not a great labor code (laughs) right now, and it was just reformed, and it continues to not be a great labor code because at its core, it maintains a central problem, which is that workers are not allowed to organize sectorally across industry. It is an enterprise union model. That means every store has its own union. That means there's 85 different Walmart unions. And that contrasted to before, industry-wide, completely different, right? And it was complicated. Big industries were always sectoral. That wasn't the case across the board, but there was more potential for sectoral bargaining before the dictatorship, for sure. I think that's what makes the Chile case interesting and very related to the United States, where we have (laughs) equally bad kind of neoliberal policies and very bad labor law. So workers, I think, are turning this labor law on its head because they understand that they don't have a lot to work with. And so they're going to make the best out of a very bad situation. Now, one thing that workers have in Chile that is more limited in the United States, even though we have freedom of association, the right to organize, is that in Chile, they actually respect that right to organize. Even (laughs) even the most conservative companies, if workers get cards and they go to management and they say, okay, now we have enough cards for a union, it's very rare that management isn't going to accept the union. Negotiating a first contract is an entirely different proposition, very much like the United States. Sometimes the barrier to entry is not so bad as negotiating the first contract, and that's a different story. But if workers come in with their 50 cards, their 10 cards, they can establish a union. And that's a little bit different from the United States, where there's so much employer attack from the get-go. And also, it sounds like Walmart tried to export its business model, anti-union business model, to Chile and then had to accept some basic facts of life, as you said. First, that workers would be organized, but that they could then try to water it down, as you said, either by having so many unions in the workplace and then, on the other hand, making the negotiations so difficult. But then let's go back then. In the United States, you mentioned the leverage they have, the structural power that the workers have, and Walmart does everything everything they can to prevent that there. And I guess I wanted to go from there to look at 
what it is that the Chilean workers had going for them. And in doing that, like you say that there wasn't a lot of historical memory from the very politicized socialist working class and communist under Allende, but were there other sort of political influences, the ones that you spoke to, or even that would be introducing into the discussion in workplaces, the Italian experience or Gramsci or surplus value and all the rest of it? Did it come from far left groups? Or is this something that you could see grew from within their experience in the workplace? Most of the warehouse workers were not involved in far left groups. I would say there was a core of workers who started the union who had more political experience, had experience in different left groups, but that was not the majority. So really, they are getting their politics from their experiences in the workplace and from the Escuela Sindical. The retail workers are a little bit different. Well, let's do that. I just wanted to go back for those listening here. You know, most of the things that we consider the gains of democracy in the United States were fought by workers fighting for socialism, but getting these concessions like in the CIO and after here in the United States. But you're saying there that these were not outside socialists and communists fighting, but this came from their own experience. That makes it pretty unique and something that would make... Carl and Friedrich up above, you know, smiling. I'm talking about Marx and Engels on the way that it's growing up organically from the bottom up, which is the way that it's supposed to. So let's go from there then to why it's different for the retail workers and what you mentioned that they fought for respect and dignity, but they don't have the same structural power. Yeah. And let me just say that the other interesting thing about all of these unions is that they put a high value on autonomy. And, you know, historically, the Chilean working class has relied heavily on the socialist and communist parties. And these unions, in starting their unions, were very adamant that they wanted nothing to do with these political parties. And they also wanted nothing to do with the Chilean equivalent of the AFL-CIO called the GUT. They really put a a high value on autonomy because they didn't want those kinds of political influences influencing their bottom-up organizing. Did that mean, though, that they were, say, cut off from funds that workers... Absolutely. Okay, so they organized basically, you know, on a shoestring, you're saying. Absolutely. I mean, these are unions with no political departments, education departments, organizing departments, uh, legal staff. They are very bare bones in terms of even the, the dues money that they get. So it's it's really based on uh, it's the heart and soul of, of the workers and leaders that are, have taken this project on. Do you take any lessons from that? In terms of, let's say, what happens in the United States as you get this sort of professional layer of union, we call them bureaucrats because that's essentially what they are, even if they're fighting in cases sometimes for the workers' interests, sometimes for their own interests. How do you see that in Chile having to, first of all, start from scratch, coming out of a dictatorship? And you mentioned that some of them had had some, I guess, experience or legacy from the organized effort in the plebiscite to finish with the dictatorship, but on the other hand, to literally start from scratch in terms of organizing. Yeah, I think it's a pretty incredible story. I think that there are limitations, that there are real limitations to having so few resources. You know, these unions are still quite young, so we don't know what that's going to look like in the next decade. But I think what they've done on a shoestring budget has been absolutely incredible. And I think the lesson here is that Walmart is absolutely organizable. 
it might look very different across the globe, but it doesn't necessarily have to take millions and millions of dollars. What it does take is a very committed cadre of workers, and that's hard to build. One of the things that you mentioned in your book, Building Power from Below, Chilean Workers Take Home Walmart, Carolina, is that in retail, the some of the structural problems were because of who the retail workers are, and they tend to be women. Talk a little bit about the way, I guess, the political and union presence of women in the Chilean workforce. Yeah, the labor force participation by women has grown dramatically since the 1990s in particular, and it's almost surpassing male workforce participation. And one of the the things that's unique, I think, about the retail workers is that the two federations I worked with were led by women, and one of them is a queer woman, which in the Chilean context is a whole other story. God, yes. (laughs) (laughs) And... The retail workers have also been incredibly successful. They have won less on the economic front, although even there compared to U.S. workers, I mean, they've won 30% wage increases since 2011. So it's not bad economically, but nothing like the 150% (laughs) wage increase that warehouse workers have won since, you know, 2006. So they have different sets of issues, right? Workers have talked to me about hearing that other cashiers were wearing diapers so that they wouldn't have to go to the bathroom Mm. as often. There are many indignities. And that's how these workers organize around a lot of those workplace daily indignities, right? Not being able to go to the bathroom. Walmart contracted out with Sodexo and changed cafeteria food. And that outraged workers who were used to getting, by the way, free lunch. Mm-hmm. And not just free lunch, but free hot lunch. And then they were given you know, a ham and cheese sandwich. And they walked out and they said, no, 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 that this is an indignity that we're not going to tolerate. So it's a different level of consciousness for sure. I mean, U.S. workers would be happy to get a free lunch, period. Chilean right. workers were already used to getting a free lunch. It's also interesting because during the Allende period, women often didn't work and in that case sometimes played a very conservative role, didn't want their husbands to go on strike because it meant less money, and famously were easily won over, not easily, were won over oftentimes to the right because of shortages and rationing and all the other things. And now you're describing how the structural conditions have produced a very different sort of female workforce. And that's really interesting. One of the things that you say in your book and you end with uh, lessons for U.S. workers is that committing to serious political education allowed these workers to create knowledge and employ power on the shop floor. Just a few words on that, Carolina, and how you could see something like that happening in the U.S. Well, I think the retail workers walk around the retail stores with a huge amount of confidence and they have delegations to management, and when those don't work out, they walk out. Walmart tried to prevent them from having union meetings in the store, and they held union meetings right in front with a mic as all the customers were coming in and out. So they have found different ways to leverage their power, even though they don't have as much structural power. Recently, they have also started mapping the shop floor, 
in the retail sector, and they're looking at who has more power in retail. Is it the cashiers? Is it the butchers? So they're also looking at how to leverage the little structural power that they have. Well, I want to thank you for writing the book and for telling us this story. And you should run out and get this book. It's called Building Power from Below, Chilean Workers Take on Walmart. This is like a real important historical and political lesson for today right here in the United States. Carolina Bank Munoz and Angelino from Chile is a Associate Professor of Sociology at Brooklyn College, and her other book is called Transnational Tortillas. This is published by Cornell. A new book is coming out, like, really shortly. May 1st. May 1st on workers. Walmart workers in the global south. So continuing the story, and I want to wish you lots of luck with that one. And thanks, Carolina Banc-Magnoz, for joining us on Jacobin Radio. Thanks so much for having me. And don't go away. We're going to come back and talk to Nelson Lichtenstein, who's written a couple of books on Walmart, and we'll talk about Walmart USA and workers generally. I'm Susie Wiseman. Welcome back to Jacobin Radio. I'm very pleased to have Nelson Lichtenstein back with us. He's a distinguished professor in the Department of History at the University of California in Santa Barbara, where he directs the Center for the Study of Work, Labor, and Democracy. He's the author or editor of a whole bunch of books, including very famously earlier on, the biography of Walter Ruther, a labor leader, and his very widely read and recently revived State of the Union, Century of American Labor, highly recommended. And his recent books are Achieving Workers' Rights in the Global Economy with Richard Applebaum in 2016. And he's got several books on Walmart, including The Retail Revolution, How Walmart Created a Brave New World of Business. And that's in 2009-10. And in 2006, there's the book Walmart, The Face of U.S. Capitalism, that is New Press. And we're having a discussion literally today about Walmart and organizing retail workers now in the United States. And Nelson's book, Walmart, the Face of 21st Century Capitalism, literally posed the question that Walmart would be the template for capitalism in this century. And that's the sort of subtitle of the next book, How Walmart Created a Brave New World of Business. And that book analyzes the way that this rogue company essentially became the world's largest corporation and transformed American politics and business. But in that book, Nelson, you anticipated a day of reckoning for Walmart as challenges to its business model, which I guess you could just say boils down to militantly anti-union, grows at home and abroad. And as the Chilean case shows, it's likely to change Walmart's empire and its practices. So we're going to ask you to go that. But let's just start with Walmart, the company defining our age and our capitalism. You say that it's just about as important for the current epoch as, say, GM was in the 20th So what distinguishes Walmart, and how did it get right. that way? Well, I mean, they've become kind of a model. Companies that are successful at least in traditional terms, profit-making terms, and then they become kind of, uh, well, success is its own advertisement, and they become models for other other people. So in the middle of the 20th century, in 1950, you went to a business school and everyone studied how GM did it. And it's, okay, this is the way you do it, you know, vertically integrated, high wage, high labor piece with tough managerial controls, etc. That's what you did. Today, you go to business school and you study either, well, today, of course, all the Silicon Valley companies, but Walmart still. And I would make the point now, Amazon is doing great and Walmart's uh, growth is not so much. But in fact, Amazon 
is very much like Walmart. In many ways, the business model is the same. That is obviously anti-union, low wage, lots of contingent workers, distribution, sourcing products from abroad. The differences between Amazon and Walmart are more or less the last stage. In one, you go to the store, and the other, you click on the web. But everything before that, and much of the ethos, is the same. So I, I make that point. Now, Walmart, it's gotten bad publicity for the low wages, for the bad health insurance. But, you know, it, it hasn't really changed that much. In fact, it just got into a lot of trouble two or three months ago when it made a big announcement. We're raising wages to $11 an hour as a result of the, the big tax cut that, that Trump and the Republicans pushed through. And then they, they shut down, you know, some stores. And it, it just didn't have a, an impact, at least at home. It didn't seem to have the boosting of its PR and its prestige that they had hoped. Walmart, I should say, is has for, for a decade, for two decades now, been extremely anxious to get lots of stores into the big urban areas of, you know, New York and L.A. and San Francisco, and, and they haven't done it. They haven't succeeded in doing it. And it turns out that if they do want to sell more stuff on the web, that this is a big, big problem. So part of my what I'd argued about a decade ago is that, yeah, when you have a low-wage um, model and you source things from China, well, this creates problems. And I don't think I have to go into those right now, but Walmart is confronting that right now. But, Nelson, this is really interesting, and it was sort of anticipating the last question I was going to ask you about, you know, well, this was then, the earlier part of the beginning of the 21st century, and now we have this big Amazon threat, and I'm glad you, you know, it's the new terror of of capitalism in a way. But one of the things that Walmart was so successful in doing was literally to make anti-unionism its mantra and to literally be thinking about it, employing a bevy of lawyers and others to prevent any form of unionization. And so I think that before getting on to Amazon and the similar problems, how did they do that and how were they successful? Well, right. Walmart came out of the South, the rural South, kind of areas of the country that really bypassed the New Deal and, and the civil rights movement and even the feminist movement. And it took this sort of rural, semi-agricultural kind of model almost, where people were just absolutely delighted to have any kind of job at all because their farms were failing. And it took that ethos and spread it nationally. Uh, Harold Meyerson always had a great metaphor. Sort of Walmart was like Robert E. Lee, you know, going north of the <laughs> Potomac and, and, and only kind of winning the Battle of Gettysburg rather than being defeated by it. So they wow. took that model and they moved it. And then when that works for them, then as I say, others emulated. So the whole in Midwest, it wasn't that Walmart caused Scott Walker to get a law passed, but it, it created this low-wage environment in which was toxic for unions, and and the, the company would spend you know a lot of, of time and money in its anti-union campaign in way semi-legally, but frankly the American labor law is, has been so rotten that it, it doesn't have to be illegal. It can just sort of obey. It can use the law you know in its own way in an aggressive way, and, and this is everywhere. Everyone else is doing this, and in effect, if you're determined enough, you can stop. Uh, Organizing and the the unions have found that to be the case. That they they've tried other techniques like the fight for fifteen and other other ways to improve conditions there. But straight out unionization is a difficulty. Now I just do want to say abroad. Maybe we want to get to the Walmart abroad in other countries. And here is kind of a, a kind of hopeful thing that politics can trump. You know, Trump. <laughs> <laughs> politics can trump Walmart. That is, 
in in Germany, for example, Walmart tried to apply the American model. Well, there were strong unions there, there were strong regulations, and strong and traditions, hostility to kind of a, the kind of the whole ethos of Walmart. And the company couldn't, just could not succeed there, and pulled out, leaving the terrain there to the German and other European countries, which were much more willing to accept uh, unions. In the UK, there was a strong union, especially in the distribution centers, right. where they they forced Walmart to negotiate. And then I went to South Africa um, a few years ago, where Walmart was seeking to um, purchase a Mass Mart, which was a kind of a, a local big discounter. And it was a it was a kind of semi-unionized company, and there was a big political push both by the UFCW in the United States and other international unions, and then also in South Africa itself. And they succeeded in saving many jobs and keeping some part of the unionization there in South Africa. So you can go around the world, and Walmart will accommodate the political uh, situation there, whether it's you know good, bad, or indifferent. It, it will do that. Canada is another story. It's a little bit too much like the U.S. and and Canada. They didn't do that. In Canada, they did. They just uh, decided that they were going to impose the American model, and they succeeded in doing that. But in, in some ways, that was an exception uh, rather than the, the rule. But also in Ottawa, they didn't do that because labor law there allowed organizing, and that famously, yeah. they built the plant and then just left it, cut their losses. Right. Well, they, yeah, they had a, um, a, a unionized store, and then they sure. shut it down. I mean, what happened was Walmart purchased Woolworth stores in Canada, and some of the, which were partly unionized, and they just shut down all of those that were unionized and then kept the ones that were non-union. And then basically, plus because Canada, I mean, the, it's so close to the U.S. and distribution centers were on either side of the, of the line, they just really imposed their system. And it was a big fight. The steelworkers in Canada fought the um, Walmart quite a bit, but ultimately uh, the company more or less imposed the American model. And then I would say, we think of Canada as sort of a nice place, but the retailers <laughs> in Canada are pretty tough. So there's something called Canadian Tire, which is a big discounter. Not just tires, but everything. And they're very uh, anti-union as well. So these retailers, they see what succeeds and they copy it. And that happened well in Canada and in UK to some extent as well. I'm Susie Wiseman. This is Jacobin Radio, and I'm speaking to Nelson Lichtenstein. Well, one of the things you're saying, Nelson, and Carolina said it too, like in talking about Chile, that Walmart came in and bought a chain that had similar sorts of characteristics. So they didn't start from scratch in each of these countries. And in Chile also, there was this new sort of citizen credit debt, you know, where they could use it. So people were, you know, using their credit cards for basic necessities and getting very indebted, but a sort of consumer culture. But you're talking about places where Walmart was not so successful, even if they did buy, say, you know, similar kinds of operations, but had different histories of working class and unionization and labor law and all the rest of it. And Walmart, we're going to move up to Amazon, I think, by the end, but Walmart is, you know, kind of reached the limit of its expansion and and has had to come up with new ways. It seems to be pretty versatile in trying to do so. But the question I have is whether or not the fact that abroad, it's had to accommodate to levels of unionization, has really hampered its business model and expansion. Uh, to some extent, yeah. I think certainly when I when I was attending uh, Walmart meetings in, in Bentonville, they were making a big point, oh yeah, we're going to become an international company. They do have about a, a quarter to a third of its income from abroad, but they haven't, in fact, 
swept all before it because, they, in part, they have had to accommodate themselves to local conditions and local laws. In China, which was at one time their great hope, now China is in no way a, a great democratic country or a country where the, where the working class has good rights for organizing, but nevertheless, there was a kind of a structure there in Canada that Walmart could not penetrate. I mean, the local political sort of and kind of other business kind of connections meant that other firms like the French firm Carrefour or local Chinese sort of discounters were sort of put forward. And so Walmart was kind of stymied there. Also, also in China, there have been efforts to organize it at Walmart. Sometimes successful and then very quickly the Chinese government, the official trade union and Walmart in cahoots <laughs> kind of snuff out these sort of very kind of local militancy. But nevertheless, it does show that ultimately, although it's a very powerful company, ultimately the political world in which it functions is more powerful. And that's something that means that unions and uh, liberals and, and radicals can shape that environment, and then Walmart will accommodate to it. I'm not saying it's going to happen tomorrow, and not in the United States necessarily, but it can happen. What about, Carolina talked about how in Chile there's the difference between the level of not unionization but success between the warehouse, Walmart, yeah. and retail, where there was yeah. only three warehouses in Chile and they were able right. to be much more successful, although there were some impressive gains for the retail as yeah. well. And you just talked about that a little bit. And today, yeah. Walmart has been very successful in what subcontracting its warehousing here in the United States, unlike Amazon, or maybe Amazon does it somewhat as well, I don't know. Does that prevent the organizing of, of low-wage workers? Is there a struggle that you can inform us about? No, no, that's a very good point, and in some ways, a, I think, a hopeful one in the long range. That, yes, almost everywhere, the distribution centers, the warehouses, they're sort of industrial with character, and you don't have the interface with the public, which creates a different dynamic. So certainly in UK, this was the center of uh, opposition. Uh, in Germany as well, in other places, the warehouses are often the, where the key organizing takes place. And these are very strategic because every distribution center serves about 100 stores. So if you shut one of those down, you, you've done quite a bit. A store by store is, is much more difficult. I mean, it can happen, but it's much more difficult. So what that means is now actually what Walmart has done, and this is a difference from Amazon, it may change, it's the 120 distribution centers that Walmart has around the country, they are actually owned and operated by the company, and the employees there are Walmart employees. That's not true of the big, gigantic distribution centers in sort of outside of Los Angeles, where the stuff from uh, China is actually kind of shipped abroad. So those are operated by third parties and subcontractors and things of that sort. So it's mixed in that sense. But I do think the Achilles heel of all the giant retailers is the distribution centers. That's the thing, and that's where various unions and Teamsters and UFCW have made their effort. And, and that's also, by the way, where wages have had to go up just in order to keep those things running. The wages there are higher than in the stores. Amazon, I think, is going to face a day of reckoning, too. It has now, it's building these distribution centers very rapidly all over the country, and it staffs them through subcontractors. So while there are probably 150,000 workers in Amazon distribution centers, 90% of them are not employed by Amazon. They're employed by these subcontractors. This is a, a very, it's a 19th century form of, 
of kind of the old patron system when you hired a bunch of immigrants to build the railroad. And right. you'd, you'd pick them up at the local bar and then, you know, send them off to the countryside. Anyway, th- so that's really what uh, Amazon is doing. But I think this creates, well, the company's been able to do it, but Amazon is, just because it's a, it's a tech company, it's in no way any more enlightened than Walmart. This is really interesting. And, and now we're seeing in this era, Walmart and Amazon going head to head. And Amazon bought Whole Foods and now Walmart yep. is deciding it's going to do home delivery of groceries. And yep. you can just see, and, and most of the business press, when they talk about these companies, just talk about all these innovations and new things they're going right. to do and rarely talk about what other challenges are there in the workforce and, and that mm-hmm. model. So this brings about the whole kind of question about organizing low-wage workers, and we've seen the fight for 15. I think one big difference now from previous years when, you know, the Bentons were in the South is that there's a lot of pro-union sentiment now. Even though we're in the Trump era, you know, and there's a lot of attack from above, you know, workers who actually go out there find that the public agrees with them. Do you see, like, any pathway for success in that? I think that's right. I've been reading the pro-union sentiment today is higher than in in a decade, probably. And one of the things we saw with a very successful strike that took place, it was down 20 years ago, but it was the United Parcel Service strike in 1997. One thing that made that successful is that the Parcel Service, the people who were on strike there were were delivering stuff, and they knew the clients, and there was sort of this um, support from the customers for that, and that was a kind of thing they developed and, and made it quite successful. The same, insofar as the sentiment, public sentiment, is in favor of unions or in favor at least of better working conditions or better shifts, then that can have a material impact on actual the possibilities of Walmart workers themselves actually doing something and getting together and doing it. And there, there have been occasions when an entire store will go out over some issue. It's often not organized by the union, but some issue, usually not wages, almost always shifts or, you know, the character of the work. And I, I want to make one point here, that the main grievance that Walmart workers have, and this, the company knows this, and studies have been made, although wages are terrible, it's not wages. It's actually having steady shifts and full-time right. work. That is the key thing. And insofar as we're getting low low unemployment today, and this is now an issue that's come to the fore, partly as a result of the so-called gig economy, etc. This makes this a legitimate and a kind of a, a demand that can be put forward. And companies are on the defensive about that, and they now brag, oh, yes, we give the people everyone two weeks' notice yeah. or this or that. So I think this is the way forward here. There are so many more questions, of course, that I wanted to ask you, including, of course, whether or not that day of reckoning is at hand, because we're seeing not just right. more pro-union sentiment, but this incredible millennial militancy and enhanced capacity to organize and win support. So I'll have you back. You know, we can talk about general state of U.S. labor, West Virginia teacher strike and all the rest of it. Thanks so much. Nelson Lixton joining us today. Nelson is a professor of history and director of the Center for the Study of Work, Labor and Democracy at UC Santa Barbara. He's got a whole slew of books, two on Walmart that have been very, very influential. And we've been talking about organizing low-wage workers. Thanks, Nelson Lichtenstein, for joining us today on Jacobin Radio. Yeah, bye-bye. Don't go away. I'll come right back. I'm Susie Weissman. Thanks for listening. I'm your host, Susie Weisman. This is Jacobin Radio. 
Thanks to producer and director Alan Minsky and to Jacobin Radio's Micah Utrecht. Bhaskar Sunkara is the founder and editor of Jacobin Magazine. And special thanks to Robert Brenner. And thanks to you for listening. I'm Susie Wiseman.